ladies and gentlemen, it is already that time once again. We are broadcasting live from a secure bunker deep beneath an old one-hour photo. It's Tavern Voices. I'm your host, Kevin King, and with me, as always, is my co-host and factless speculation partner, Tyler Crowley. I like that uh, you're the host and I'm the co-host, so I like that. So it's sort of like, I, I see where you're going. I see, I see where my importance lies in here. I'm just pointing out the, the different, the different uh, titles that we have. Your host, I'm co-host. Well, so. someone's got to keep you in line because, after all, you tried to rename this the Tyler Crawley podcast. That's true. Uh, That's true. About a dozen episodes ago. So <laughs> every episode, I try and change it to the Tyler Crawley <laughs> podcast. You're just not. You're just not. You're just not picking up on it. Uh, all right. So we're about twelve days away from the election, and somewhere around there, I, math is math is hard. And what's interesting is we're already getting early voting data, early voting, of course, in North Carolina, as well as some other states. And I got to say, it's quite fascinating. So the numbers for 2018, this midterm election, are looking a lot like the last midterm election. And that is surprising because this is a blue moon in North Carolina. We have no one at the top of the ticket. And so the expectations were we were numbers were going to be way down. So ballots cast by registered Democrats so far make up 43% of the total. Uh, in 2014, it was 48%. Republicans are looking at about 30%. And un- unaffiliated voters uh, are at 26% up from 20%. Republicans, by the way, are about where they were in 2014. So unaffiliated voters way up, Democrats down a little bit. Uh, but it's not just North Carolina. In Michigan, in the U.S. Senate race, it looked like uh, the incumbent senator, uh, Debbie Stabenow, and I think I said that correctly, at one point in September, had a 23-point uh, lead on Republican challenger John James. Her lead is now down to seven points. A, signific- a significant factor in the race, according to the pollsters, is an uptick in the approval rating of Donald Trump and a narrowing of the voter enthusiasm gap between Republicans and Democrats. Kevin, have the Democrats found a way to screw this election up? Oh, absolutely. We've been talking about that on here for weeks now. I think that's exactly what they did. I knew that um, I had had this feeling that Democrats were going to get into a little bit of trouble when they had the entire right side of the aisle united behind uh, Lindsey Graham out of South Carolina during the Kavanaugh hearings uh, because he's always been a firebrand of the Rhino versus Tea Party faction in the uh, in the Republican Party. But um, you know, I I think that these numbers are very interesting because they have really shifted. Um, there is no one who thought it was going to be close. Any sort of pollster uh, six, eight months ago, they said, hey, we're you know, the Dem- the Democrats are going to pick up seats. Um, they might even I mean, people were saying they could take the Senate back. It could be a complete flip where the legislature is Democrat uh, against the Trump presidency, which would be a wild ride. And now it's it's very likely that. Um, that they may not get either chamber. So I, I think that what they have done is once again underestimated the Trump voter. And I've said this before that I don't mean the Trump voter as in the person who believes that Trump is the end all be all. He does have a core group of supporters. But I think there's also the Trump voter who is the average person who doesn't like politics, who doesn't like these games. Um, I've talked to, I had a friend call me yesterday and was saying that, hey man, I, I feel like things just did not get handled well. It was a circus is the term he used with the Kavanaugh hearings. And he's not a staunch Republican, you know, as far as a party person by any means. So long story short, what I'm getting at 
is yes, I, I don't think the data is looking good for this uh, blue wave. I don't think it is either. Uh, like I said, the numbers we just talked about, I mean, you got a place like Michigan, which let's not forget Donald Trump won Michigan, which surprised everyone. So Republicans can win statewide. And, you know, John James, a lot of people are excited about his candidacy. Uh, he has a really interesting story. He's a veteran. Um, he you know, took his family business. Uh, you ran that and, and has, is, has turned it from a small business into a bigger business. Um, also the fact that, uh, he is a black man and, you know, you just don't see a lot of black Republicans running for office. And so there's just a lot of things that people like about John James and the fact that, you know, people liked his candidacy as is, uh, it was always a long shot. And the fact that he has a shot, uh, I think is really showing that, yeah, I think people are underestimating the Republican vote, especially in some of these blue states. And what's amazing, I think about the, uh, the numbers and you know what we're seeing is that we could end up where the Senate has more separation than the House. I mean, how crazy would it be if there was only a two vote margin in the House and like a four vote margin in the Senate? So all of a sudden you have these congressmen who are looked at as being far more important than you know, because the Senate's always been the place where the votes are tight. But now it could switch and the House could be the place where they're squeaking votes by and things in the Senate. Uh, are, are getting now the Senate obviously has the filibuster, so that's there's there's a difference there. But it would just be crazy to think that there could be a smaller vote margin in the House than in the Senate. But yeah, I mean the numbers are showing that clearly the enthusiasm gap exists, uh, or the gap is narrowing, and both Republicans and Democrats are are pumped about this election. And even it doesn't matter; it's a blue moon. And so I don't know if that's good or bad. And the problem with North Carolina is you got a lot of registered Democrats who vote Republican. So I think the problem with these numbers is that it's very difficult to determine what this means because a lot of Democrats vote Republican, a lot of unaffiliated vote Republican, uh, but maybe that's changing. And so we're not really going to know until 12 days from now. So that's one of the other difficult things about North Carolina is just because Democrats are voting or not voting does not give you an indication. uh, What does that actually mean for Democrat votes at the end of the day? No, and I think one of the telling numbers in the uh, North Carolina early voting statistics is the African-American vote, which we know from studying 2008, 2012, as well as 16 and the midterms all along that way. The African-American voting block is very impactful to the Democratic ticket, right? We have seen that African-American turnout can have a big uh, a big effect on whether or not Republicans win uh, and whether or not Democrats win. Right. So I think the fact that that's down by about 20 percent could could be a big impact on the Democrats in this election. Yeah, I mean, the black vote is obviously uh, I mean, it's like 93 percent of black voters vote Democrat. I mean, that, that's why, if you remember in the famous um, uh, what was the the Supreme Court case? I can't remember now. Where was it? Crow Marty? I think it might have been that. Yes. Where um, the Democrats, Roy Cooper, at the time was a senator, and they you know got in trouble that they were you know sort of lumping black voters in certain districts, and they were the argument was is that well they I'm looking at it through the political prism, and black voters tend to vote Democrat, so I'm putting Democrats in this district, and the Supreme Court said yeah that's okay. And then the Republicans did it and they said, no, you can't do that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, the black vote is one of the vote is, 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 of all the of um, I guess you could call races uh, is the one that votes more with one um, uh, with one party. 
And so that is a good indicator because white vote is split. Hispanic, I mean, mind you, the Hispanic vote, Asian vote and black vote, all majority vote Democrat, uh, while the white vote, I think the majority Republican, uh, it's not as high as it is with the black vote. So it is a good indicator because if, if it turned out as down, that could be a bad sign. And you saw that with Obama. Obama years, black vote was up uh, in the midterms. It was down and the Democrats ended up losing. So it is a good indicator. It is. It is. So I, I think it'll be interesting to keep a hold on this and see what happens, because I think the North Carolina uh, election cycle is going to be, like you said, it's a blue moon election. We don't see this very often. And we've had a lot of, I would say, uh, interesting anomalies going on here statewide <laughs> as far as um, the whole fact you have England running for Supreme Court as a Republican is very strange, uh, the way that all unfolded. And you have uh, a lot of contest on whether or not people actually live where they're running. Um, there's been a whole lot of uh, interesting things. And if you don't mind to stay in North Carolina, Tyler, is that okay with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you if you've been paying attention to the political ads here in North Carolina this year. A little bit, uh, mostly because they all run on my radio show, so I have to hear them. So, so yeah, I, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, they have bombarded my nightly Jeopardy routine because <laughs> from 7 to 7.30, all I get are political ads. And I really have to say that they have set the bar to a new time low for uh, this election cycle. See, there are a few ads that have used the phrase, quote, underfunding education, whatever that means. Uh, one ad calls for the, uh, they call the opponent disrespectful to women because they made a single campaign donation before that particular person had any allegations against them. And uh, of course, my favorite is the ad that cites an op-ed in a newspaper as the fact for their argument. Mind you, I'm mentioning ads that are on both sides of the aisle. I'm not even picking sides on this one. So, Tyler, do you think that these ads are made assuming people are dumb or are they the product of dumb politicians? Oh, that's a tricky question. I was going to say the ads are made for people that don't follow politics. And I think one of the biggest problems that we run into, especially for people, you know, like you and I and everyone probably listening to this we're informed. And so when you see an ad and it's like, this person supports pollution, you're like, that's the stupidest ad. And you're like, here's why that's dumb. Da, 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 da. But if you don't pay attention to the news, you have no idea what's going on. You watch Jeopardy, but you don't read the news. Um, and you hear something about pollution that could be, oh, wow. Yeah. I saw that ad, Michael Lee, or, you know, cause that's one of the big races down here. Michael Lee supports pollution. Harvard Peterson's friends with lobbyists. Uh, that's Harvard Peterson's running against Michael Lee here in the ninth district. And, you know, they're going back and forth. That's the race that has the most advertising and the most buys. And so, yeah, if you don't know anything about Michael Lee, you know anything about Harvard Peterson. Yeah. You could be like, oh, that's, that doesn't look very good. But for the but the the problem is is that a lot of times we look at them through the eyes of people that follow politics closely, and it seems redundant, it seems stupid, it seems clearly not true. But you have to look at through the average person who doesn't follow political news twenty four seven, who's maybe not on Twitter. That's who those ads are targeted for, and I think that's why they seem so bad in so many cases. But yet they seem to work. I mean, if they weren't working. These uh, consultants would not be making the money that they are and they would not be doing what they're doing. Clearly, 
there is evidence that these ads are working. And so I think that's the biggest problem that I always run into is I always look at the ads through my eyes and I'm like, oh, that's not true. And here's why it's not true. Or that is true. Most people are seeing those candidates for the first time. And yeah, that's how you got to look at them through. And so they look dumb to us. And like I said, everyone listening, but to the person who has no idea who these people are, it might have an impact. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that you're I- exactly right because most people see this ad and they take it for face value. And a lot of people already kind of pick which side they're on. As much as people want to say they are undecided voters, I think they generally lean heavily one direction or the other, although they could be pushed slightly one way um, you know, or the other based on circumstantial evidence, because you always hear that in polling. They do the push polling and say, well, if you found out that such and such was a pedophile, would you still vote for them? You know, absurd questions to see if yeah. it would sway your opinion. But um, but that kind of brings me to my point of wondering, and I mean this legitimacy, legitimacy that's not the word I'm going for, legitimately, mm. uh, do we have a problem? I mean, do you think that voter intelligence, and I don't mean individual intelligence, but like their their aptitude on understanding the candidates and knowing the issues and knowing what's going on, is that getting better or worse due to the fact that, I mean, we have so much technology now where people can look at votes. They can look at the records of individuals if they chose to spend the time, but I'm not sure that we're becoming a more informed electorate. It's possible. It's it's like I said, it's so hard to tell. I mean, the, the fact that we are seeing more participation, uh, to, I guess this is the problem, is that, yeah, I don't know. Are we a more informed and electric? I mean, I think we have more information. Uh, the problem is, is it the right information? Um, and I don't know. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to tell because, like I said, it, you always look at everything through your eyes and – it does seem like there's so much misinformation out there and you got right wing websites and left wing websites and they're telling the same story completely differently. And it, I don't know, it's, it's so difficult to tell because, you know, I look at them through, you know, more right wing perspective and I'm like, these left wing websites are completely telling the wrong story. And so it's really hard to know where the, the middle is. It's really hard to know where like the truth is, I guess I should say. And so there is more information. I just don't know if it's if it's good information and if this is a good thing because we always say, hey, it's awful that only you know ten percent of people vote or you know you know fifty percent of the country votes in a presidential election. Well, if it's a hundred percent, but fifty percent are still uninformed, is that better? I don't think it is. That's my exact point. I mean, that that's the question I'm asking because um, someone brought that up recently on Twitter and said, if you if you haven't bothered to register to vote and you can't get out there during we have 18 days of early voting this year. I mean, that that makes voting the most cap. More people will spend time driving through a McDonald's drive through in the next two weeks than they will going to vote. But we need almost yeah. three full weeks for people to go out to vote. And I'm, I, I don't I don't get it. I mean, it should be one day. It should be the most important thing that you are doing. If you're not registered and you weren't intending on voting on Election Day or at least maybe one or two Saturdays before, just in case that you can't get off from work or something. I understand that circumstance, but it almost just seems so casual now that people just show up and cast their ballot and they have no idea why. I mean, yeah, I mean, people aren't informed. And so, I mean, it's kind of funny because this is the, you're right. I mean, this is like the big battle. Like, do we want a lot of people voting or do we want 
only inform people voting. And I guess that's, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how you get, because like I said, what we look at as being uninformed, people on the left will say they're, they're absolutely informed and they think that we're uninformed. And so it's, it's, I don't, I don't even know how you determine who's informed and who's not, because there are people who listen all day long to, you know, news and they're reading all day long and they're completely wrong about everything. And so I don't know. I don't even know how you tell if someone's informed nowadays, because there are so many people that all they do is watch news and read and they're wrong. And so I don't, I don't even know how you determine that anymore. Yeah. I mean, you're probably wrong saying that. Exactly. I am probably wrong <laughs> saying that. Um, all right. Now, speaking of... Well, I actually have no transition for that. So we're just going to go into my story. <laughs> I was going to try and do some <laughs> cool transition. I got nothing. I got nothing. Because it's, we're going to talk about some social justice warriors oh. is what we're going to be talking about. Sp- speaking of, there you go. Speaking of uninformed, there we go. That's my transition. Uh, Orange County District Court Judge Beverly Scarlett. Uh, for those that don't know, the reason I'm bringing her up, uh, she was presiding over a case uh, about assault at the Silent Sam statue on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, and so someone, a protester, punched another pro, like an anti-protester, whatever they are, protester versus protester. And she said she was not going to punish Barry Brown, a man that she had just found guilty of punching another protester at the Silent Sam rally in August, because she said the university is the proximate cause of this conflict. She says the Confederate statue inflames emotions and leads to agitation. She closed by saying, I asked the leadership of the university, if your goal is to teach a diverse community of students, what are you doing to assure that all these students feel emotionally and physically safe? Emotional safety. Kevin, should judges be talking like social justice warriors? Well, haven't they been for a very long time? Aren't activist courts kind of what has been undermining the rule of law they were supposed to be upholding uh, the entire time. So no, I think if that was a yes or no question, (laughs) no, I I just don't know. I've I've just never heard emotional say like physical safety. I get that complete legit argument, but this emotional, her argument is the statue was so emotionally, painful for people that this university had like an obligation to deal with the emotional safety. And it's just, that word is horrifying because of how horribly corrupted it could be. It could be used for anything. Like, I don't like that brick wall. It's a, I don't feel emotionally safe. So get rid of it. Or I don't like that room or that whatever. I mean, you could use that for anything. And that is terrifying that you have judges demanding emotional safety. Uh, and there's an obligation to protect emotional safety. It just, that is a, that is a horrifying idea that can be just absolutely used for anything. Well, it really is. And I've put a lot of thought into this. I had no idea that this was the topic you were going towards when you said, we'll be talking about SJWs (laughs) today. But, um, you know, I think that there's this weird phenomenon in the human race where, at least in society where we, we ignore a certain component, right? And so people start to bring this up and say, we should acknowledge this. And we all agree that we should acknowledge it because it's been, um, you know, it's been completely ignored or it's stigmatized, right? And then we bring it to light and all of a sudden everyone starts flocking to it. And I think it has some sort of inverse reaction to humanity. And, and the reason I bring this up is, have you seen uh, or have you heard of the new show A Million Little Things, Tyler, on, uh, on yes. ABC? I don't know if you've seen any of it yet. Have you? 
No, no, I mean, I, I very rarely get to watch network TV. I, I kind of had a feeling it was past your bedtime, but it's true. That's also true. Yeah. Um, but it's a show about the the opening scene uh, or opening under the pilot is the main character jumps off of his nice uh, office patio on this high rise building and in Boston and commit suicide and all of his friends come together and they're kind of like, how did we miss this? And one of the other main characters was in the process of uh, trying to overdose because of depression at the exact moment he gets the phone call that the other friend had died. So um, it it ends up kind of going through. And in the episode last night, he is talking with his dad because he's trying to find out if there's a history of depression in the family. And he asks his dad if he's ever sad, you know, are you ever down? Did you have any kind of issues? And he's trying to do it in a father-son way that's not very emotional. And dad said, well, sure, everyone's sad. And it, it really made me think about how we talk about all of these issues, whether it be mental health, depression, um, emotional stability and safety, whatever these keywords are, because there is some component to it, right? Like if someone's depressed, we don't want people killing themselves if we could help them. But then at the same time, we create this culture to where we have more people on drugs than ever because of quote depression or anxiety or all of these other lists of, because then it becomes a medical condition, right? And it becomes a checkbox, So I just really wonder how many people we're helping by creating safe spaces when maybe there's one person that needs a safe space. But then once you have 30 people using that safe space, is it having the opposite reaction of destabilizing their emotion rather than helping to stabilize it? That's an interesting theory. Um, And I think it could be very true. I mean, if you think about it, uh, people have talked about you know, when they're going through something horrible and, you know, people kind of, yeah, they're not allowed to wallow in it. You know, you don't sort of, you, you know, you just don't, the best thing to get someone out of a funk is to, you know, encourage them to get up and move on and go on. And, you know, not too quickly, obviously, if someone's going through something, you want them to be able to experience that and, and not brush them aside. But also if you just let people just sort of, you know, like I said, wallow in their sorrows, it can actually make it worse. Um, and so I think there is some truth where when someone is saying something ridiculous and you give it credence instead of going, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life, it might lead them to move on and go, yeah, you know what? That was pretty dumb. Um, and then also it, what it does is, is that, and this is the big problem that we have right now, especially with, so, you know, this identity politics that exists is that, you know, my big theory is that, you know, you look at racism as a whole, you know, institutional racism. And for the most part, the big problems that we had have been solved. And are there still racist people? Absolutely. Are there still issues? Yes, but they're nowhere near as as, as large as they used to be. And so you have people who are fighting in the civil rights movement and they want to make their fight seem as important as the fight you know, for the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act. And in reality, it's not. But they want to feel that way. And so they want to feel like they're, you know, they're, like they're fighting just like their grandfathers and fathers were. And so they make up these like insane things like, oh, can you believe that? I can't even think of some of the dumb examples that exist. Um, but the things that all these kids are fighting for on campus, like the, like the time where the woman saw the projector cover and thought it was a Klan hood. And they went like crazy. And then they found out it was false. It was still, well, there's still a problem anyway. And it's just, it's like, 
they have to have these grandiose things to justify their outrage and make their fight seem more righteous when in reality it's not. And so if you coddle that and you allow that, it, it just gets worse and worse. And they keep finding dumber and dumber things to get upset about to justify the, 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 why they're upset about something. Well, isn't that the great um, point of, uh, you know, American privilege is that people can worry about a, a clan hood projector yeah. cover while across the planet, there are billions of people who live on a dollar a week or whatever the statistic is who have to, they don't have clean drinking water, but yet we can just talk about how inanimate objects affect us emotionally. <laughs> that talk about some privilege. Well, and, Glad you brought that up because this is kind of off topic, but not really, because it also reminds me of, you know, because right now there's two big stories in the news, uh, you know, you or it was in the news, you know, Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi Arabian journalist who was killed uh, by Saudi Arabia. Uh, at least that's about a, everyone's about almost 100 percent sure. Of Allegedly. That. And yeah, I know. I, I don't even know now. It's, well, now they said, yeah, of course we did it. And before it was well by accident. So I'm not even I, I think they've admitted it. So that happened. And then you have this whole pipe bomb situation, you know, uh, going on as well. And, and, and the reason the press loves these two stories is because it makes them feel better. Like, and I'm not like, cause there are journalists out there like Jamal Khashoggi and there are other journalists who are embedded in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Those journalists are putting their life on the line, their life at risk to tell a story. But the guys sitting in the New York studio in, you know, that make $10 million a year, they're not, you know, D-Day fighters or firefighters or whatever they compare themselves to. But these stories make it seem like that. And so it makes them feel like, oh, we're standing up to Trump. We're putting our life. You know, you're not Jamal Khashoggi did. And that's what can happen in Saudi Arabia, or that's what can happen in Turkey or Russia. But no, Donald Trump is never going to kill you, okay? Donald Trump is not going to send a hit squad out to get you. You are not those people, and you are not – what you're doing is not anywhere near as amazing as you think it is. Uh, there are some, like I said, the, the embedded journalists and, and journalists in other countries are trying to expose the dictators that, that have power, but not in the United States. I mean, I'm glad that they're out there telling, you know, it's important news gathering, but they are nowhere near the, the fighters that they believe that they are. And it's the same thing with the SJWs. They want their fight to seem righteous and they want it to seem so impactful and they're fighting over the dumbest stuff. Yeah, it's, it's the generation of retweet journalists. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, speaking of, I was just going to try to do a worse segue than you did last segment. But, um, next story. Next story. <laughs> Cut to next scene. Um, so this actually has nothing to do with anything we've talked about all day. So there's no good way to wrap this in. But it's something I wanted to talk about because I feel like it's making news headlines. But I think that there's a bigger story underneath it. So I will... Explain, Tyler. I know you're sitting on the edge of your rolly chair right now, waiting for this one. I so am. it's a rocking over, chair, actually. It's actually a yoga right. ball. It's a yo. Oh, you, are you are you uh, doing some uh, some aerobics? Some core. Working on the core. Working on the core right now. If there's one person that brings fitness to my mind, it is you, Tyler. <laughs> so let's try to fit this story into the rest of the segment. So the last couple of weeks have been a total roller coaster for the United States stock market. After two years of steady climb since Trump's uh, election, it has all but come tumbling down in a short period of time. Swings of 300 points or more in either direction has left many analysts confused. In fact, two-thirds of the way through October, the Dow was down more than 7% and the S&P down 9% for the year. Yet, through all of this, 
quarterly earnings are positive. The economy is still strong. Unemployment is still at an all-time low. So, Tyler, here's my conspiracy theory. I think that computers have taken over the stock market. Do you agree with me, or are you just too afraid to admit it? <laughs> you talking about the uh, like flash traders? Yeah, I think so. Here's what I think: we see these wild swings now. Everything was pretty steady, even the the tick downs and back up. Everything was pretty calm. But I think that all of these algorithms have been programmed so that when it climbs to a certain amount, it automatically sells. If it dips down to a certain amount, they sell and then buy back in. And I think there's an automation that is causing these these big swings. Well, there is truth to that. That's something that people are concerned about. Uh, like I said, you know, you got these these flash traders who use these highly sophisticated, you know, high tech computers, uh, and it allows them to do these gigantic trades in fractions of a second, and you know, be able to pick up like a fraction of a point. But it's such a large amount that they can make a lot of money on that. And the problem with that is that I mean, there are these huge trades, and you're right about the algorithms. A lot of people have stop loss orders on their trade. So if the order gets to a certain point, you sell and a lot of people have similar points. And so it what happens is is that when those fire and it, it causes a, a quick drop and then the other ones fire and it sort of causes this domino effect. And that's why you see these giant swings usually when it goes down. And then you'll see giant swings back because then people have, you know, buy orders and then all of a sudden boom, they're kicking. So it, it 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 is. There's a lot of computers going on. But there's a I think there's another thing also we're nine years into a bull market and a bull run or whatever you want to call it. And everyone is so petrified for the correction. Everyone's like, we got to have one. It's got to happen. I mean, you just can't have the market move this way. I mean, at some point it just, it gets overvalued. And so anytime something happens, everyone goes, here it is. It's the end. And everyone starts pulling their money out. And it's very emotional because if you actually look at the data, there's no reason the market should be down. I mean, earnings are still great. I mean, there's some warnings from companies like Caterpillar and 3M that said the trade war could be causing issues. The trade war is an issue for a lot of people. They're concerned about the raw material prices. Uh, so that's that's a legitimate concern. You know, growth could be slowing. There's a little concern. But they're saying the third quarter numbers are going to be good. Like I said, earnings are good. And so a lot of it's just people just thinking, hey, this has to end. What goes up must come down. We're getting to that point. And so whenever there's a little little move downward, everyone goes, oh no. And then they overreact. And that's usually what causes these big, I mean, yesterday uh, when the market dropped 600 points, the market was steady all day. And then all of a sudden it just at the end. And a lot of it is people, I think they just get very emotional and they, and they're, and I think that's the problem is it's just, people are just like, this thing has to end. <laughs> it's been nine years. There has to be a correction. Usually corrections are like 10%. And so they're they're they think they always think this is it, and then they start going well maybe it's not, and because then all the other traders the next day buy you know they buy the dip, and then people start buying back in and just it's it, it's I actually don't think it's computers as much as it's actually just the unfortunate reality of human emotion, where everyone just expects like this is it this is it and they keep and they've been saying this for like a year, uh, or like no I'm sorry three years they've been talking about this correction that's supposed to happen so I actually think it's the opposite I think it's the non computers. But human emotion, the one thing computers lack. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll take I'll take that answer. <laughs> I won't argue with you on that point. But um, but no, I was just wondering because, like you said, I mean that does make sense. Like yesterday, down six hundred. Today, back up four hundred. That's a pretty wild swing. Yeah. I mean, you're talking a couple of percentage points in in either direction. Um, 
and then, you know, obviously internationally, uh, the markets aren't great in Europe and in China. Um, the emerging markets have been slowed down for a while. So I was just curious what you thought, if you thought this was any indicator well, of, of things to come. I know I've seen articles fluttering around about the old uh, subprime mortgages sneaking back up and things like that. Uh, well, I, I did want to say also that global growth is also an issue because some people are wondering, you know, how can America be the only country that's growing? Uh, because we do rely so much on you know foreign trade, and if they're not doing well, at some point it's going to affect us. I mean, let's face it, you know our our crash in two thousand eight almost took down the global economy, and so it's funny that like every other country in the world is suffering, and we're not suffering, which just goes to show how powerful our economy truly is. But some people were saying it's finally going to start impacting us because their growth is so slow that it could you know affect us. And like I said, the trade war. So there's a lot of other things. But I do think a lot of it is is very emotional and people are concerned that, OK, this is it. This this is finally the correction that we're waiting for because it's going to happen. You just can't have. And it also should be noted that a 600 point drop when the Dow's at twenty five thousand is not what it used to be. I mean, you go back and I think Black Friday in 1980. How was it? Nine. I think it was eighty nine. Um, it was like a 500 point drop. And it, and it, it, it remember you saw the beginning of Wolf of Wall Street, right? right? Yeah. Uh, remember he talks about uh, Black Friday. I think it was eighty nine, and uh, or maybe eighty seven, and it ended. It ended um, uh, Rothschild, the company that had been around for like a hundred years. <laughs> it dropped five hundred points, and it took a brokerage house out that had been around for a hundred years. A five hundred point swing now is like who cares? Uh, I mean, it, you know, people get a little upset, but it's a fraction of what the of where the Dow is. But back then, the Dow was at like you know two thousand points, so it was you know a huge huge hit. So that's another thing is that we're, you know, we're used to seeing these 500 point swings as being this big deal. And for a hundred years it was, but now it's not because the market's so, so value. There's so much value in it with 25,000 that 600 point swing isn't as big as it used to be. Yeah, it's, it's probably not. And and I forget that you are a few years older than me. So were you like the little E-Trade baby in the eighties when the, uh, <laughs> yeah. E-Trade, dude, that was nineties. Come on. E-Trade didn't come no, to just, prominence until the, uh, I imagine, online I imagine the little baby though, you know, sitting there in the, in the playpen making stock trades like the E-Trade baby. That's true. I was. So. Oh, the E-Trade baby. Yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, I got you. I got serious. Yeah. I remember the E-Trade baby. That was, that was, uh, that was good times. Good. To, that was back when the internet was this new frontier. It was like the gold rush in California ever. Everyone was, uh, Anyone with any idea, just put on the internet, $100 million. <laughs> well, maybe next week uh, you and I should meet at the old pets.com warehouse to do the show. That is true. That sock puppet still in the unemployment line. <laughs> Economy's not that good yet. No one's looking for him. He still can't get work. Him and Lamb Chop, man. Nothing for him. <laughs> Luckily, they have the song that never ends because otherwise they get bored. Well, unlike the song that never ends, this is not the podcast that never ends. So I think we should wrap it up and let's do it uh, again next week, my friend. What do you think? I think that sounds like a plan. I'll see you, man. See ya. See ya.